0: Hand in hand, we just sang that beautiful song about, in fact, walking with our Savior, walking with Him each day, and what a delightful journey it is. It isn't always trivially easy, of course, but we know where the destination leads. In Revelation 14, 4, aren't we reminded that He currently, of course, is in heaven, follow the Lamb, we're told, whithersoever He goeth. Certainly, as was already mentioned, we're thankful for the presence of each and every person today. And it's our honest and earnest hope that our worship to God will certainly be pleasing to Him and will be encouraging to all of us who are here. You may have noted that our title of the lesson today is going to involve an interview. An interview as it discusses that subject, that particular topic or matter of withdrawal fellowship. This introductory slide, I hope, will set before you some of the main ideas that will get us going here in just a moment. I feel it very safe to say that. Of all the commandments that you and I encounter in the pages of the New Testament, quite likely the most difficult, the most challenging, the most unseemly one is the withdrawal of fellowship. It's not fun. Elders don't like it. It is not anyone's desire that some individual, some Christian, so conduct him or herself that the topic even has to be considered. But you and I know that it nonetheless is a command. And it's one that the Lord and Savior has included as a part of what He expects His congregations that are faithful to follow. You and I also know that over the course of decades past, it is something that has very rarely ever happened. We have arisen a generation or two that in some cases have never even seen the withdrawal of fellowship. It's been since, again, several decades past that some congregation that they've ever heard of has, has actually done it. For that reason, there are many questions about it. Very good questions, in fact. I thought today we would consider those questions in the form of an interview. And so I'd like you and your imagination to do this with me. I'd like you to suppose that you're situated in some sort of auditorium. Jesus is at the podium. he is going to field questions from those who are there located and gathered. But beside Him is Paul and Peter and John three of the apostles of the New Testament. And as the Lord answers those questions, fielding them and directing attention to various places in the Word of God, it's going to be our desire to listen to what He has to say as He, in fact, invites us to consider this topic. To do so, let's allow Jesus to speak first. And so, again, imagine with me, Jesus at this particular podium, and He says, "...we've come together today..." hopefully to give some thought and consideration to the matter that's found in my book, the New Testament. He says, I know there are many questions about the withdrawal of fellowship, when it's to be done, how it's to be done, what should be the perspective and the viewpoint in relation to it. I hope that today, as I field your questions, Jesus says, that we can give some thought to what this means. But He says, first of all, I would encourage all of you to listen carefully, and to think about the wording that's used. Sometimes today you'll hear individuals say, so are we kicking somebody out of the church? Are we shunning somebody? Are we excommunicating somebody? And Jesus encourages all in that audience, listen, please use Bible terms to discuss this. It is withdrawing fellowship. You're not kicking somebody out of the church. You're not locking the doors on somebody. You're not shunning somebody. Those terms are things the world may often have used, but they're not found in the New Testament in relation to this. And so as we strive to use Bible names to describe things, let's call it the way the Lord calls it, withdrawing fellowship. We know what the word withdraw means. It means to hold something back, to keep something from reaching its destination. And the word fellowship has to do, of course, with one's concourse, the association, if you please. And so withdrawing fellowship is to hold back, in one way or another, the degree of one's association with. Now, Jesus goes on to say, I know that that general discussion is only going to get things going in terms of your questions. And so, the one last thing I would ask you to notice. Jesus very clearly says to that audience gathered, I want you to appreciate the significance of this. We're talking about someone who's lost. Someone who at least in his or her current choices in life are going to hell. They are making the wrong choices and we love them enough to do this. We love them enough in the one final hope Jesus says, I'm the head of the church and this is the last thing that I will delegate to my church that it can do with the hope to recover them, with the hope to rest in their mind the urgency of the situation. With that said, Jesus says, I'd like to open the floor for questions. And so our first question. A gentleman perhaps over near the side rises And this gentleman makes this observation Jesus, we're so thankful that you have taken your time out of your busy schedule to help us understand the nature of this withdrawing of fellowship. But I do have a question. There's some things about it I don't understand. And so our first question He says, I very clearly like to know who is to be withdrawn from. How do you make this determination? Jesus very immediately says, I wish that the church over which I'm head and out of which I'm foundation would never lose sight of the urgency and how sweet it is to contemplate Christian fellowship. When an individual is baptized into Christ, they at that point become a member of the family of God. There's God the Father, I, Jesus speaking, am their elder brother, Romans 8, verses 14 to 17. And we are all heirs of God. In fact, that fellowship is sweet. It's rich. It's powerful. Because those are the very people that you anticipate are going to be together throughout all the endless ages of eternity. We're all headed to that beautiful place called heaven. Jesus says, don't you know, there's many mansions there I, in fact, am in the process of preparing them, and on that day of judgment, I will joyfully say, Enter thou into the joys of my Lord to those that are faithful. The problem is, there's someone who has suffered a hiccup. This individual, though once a faithful child of mine, and I loved him, I loved her, I died on the cross for them, but they've abandoned me. They have chosen to go a different trek, a different course. They're children of the devil. And in, the, in my love for them, I want my church then to engage in this activity. Now, this individual who has just asked this question, again has asked, who do you withdraw from? And so Jesus amplifies by saying, any Christian who will not repent of sin is the one to whom and from whom one must withdraw." Let's turn to Matthew chapter 18. Jesus, in fact, brings our attention to this location. In beginning in verse 15 of that chapter, Jesus, speaking from the book He wrote, says, "...Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established." And if he shall neglect to hear thee, to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus thus, as he speaks and identifies, here's an individual, and when personal attempts are made to help Encourage that individual. Don't you know you are doing what Jesus says you mustn't? He may hear you. And Jesus says if he repents, you've gained your brother. You don't withdraw from somebody that's saved. But He says if he won't hear you, take a couple of witnesses with you. If he won't hear them, bring it before the church. If he still will not repent, if that person still... In a position of hardened character, refuses to repent, Jesus then says, Let him be as a heathen man in the public, and you withdraw fellowship from him. You may notice near the bottom of that slide, to even help those who in the audience understand this, Jesus turns to Peter and says, Would you please read out of the book that bears your name? 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. Let me also read that in our hearing. Jesus is going to use it to make a comment in just a moment. Second Peter 2, beginning in verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein, and overcome, the latter end with them is worse than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them." But it has happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Jesus pauses then to interject this statement. Sir, I'm thankful you asked the question. He says again, we are dealing with an incredibly serious issue. This individual is now in a worse position than he or she was in before they ever obeyed the gospel. Now, they were lost then. They are, in fact, at this point, in terms of the fact they've rejected the only plan of salvation. They've turned their back on the one who loved them most. They are now worse off than they were before. We've got to try to reclaim them, Jesus says. And that's the reason I give you these considerations. Jesus finally makes one set of statements, closing His comment with respect to this question. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse number 6, it highlights to this point. Again, who's to be withdrawn from, one must have an appreciation of and a very high regard for the purity of the church. And so, that particular passage reads as follows. 1 Corinthians 5, verse number 6. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? The individual then who is engaging in this kind of lifestyle, though once a faithful Christian but no longer so, one does not want that to begin to negatively impact other impressionable souls in that congregation. One final thing Jesus says from Ephesians 5.27, My church, the church for which I died, must be maintained as spotless and blemishless. That's the way I purchased it. And therefore, one must take seriously this ongoing rebellious spirit with respect to sin. Jesus says, are there more questions? Another person, this time a woman raising her hand. She too, very curious about the circumstances involved, and she too expresses a thankfulness for being able to hear such an interview from Jesus. She, however, quickly asked this question. She says, but Jesus, isn't it true everybody sins? Even every Christian sins. So does this mean then that we must withdraw fellowship from every single Christian? Jesus says, that's a great question. But you're failing to understand something. So He again asks that one and all within the character of that audience hear with care. It is true, Jesus says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. In fact, He even borrows the language of 13 verses earlier in that chapter and says, there is none righteous, no, not one. And in connection to that, He brings us to 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9 and says, if any man say he has no sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. So Jesus says, ma'am, you're exactly right. Everyone is guilty of transgressing in some way the will of my Father. But he says that's not the ones from whom you withdraw fellowship. You withdraw fellowship from those who won't repent of it. Those who in an attitude of rebellion to the nature of God are moving in the direction that's evil. and They know it, but they have no interest in changing. They're content or at least somewhat happy to continue in this state of rebellion to God. Those are the ones... Do you see then, Jesus asked, everyone see the distinction in that audience. Though all may sin, you and I as Christians have a heart of penitence, a heart of godly sorrow, a heart desiring to ever do the will of our Father. This individual of whom the Lord speaks, this is a person who again has begun to walk in this pathway of evil knowing it, but is unwilling to change, unwilling to repent unwilling to come back to that initial status of favor with God. You'll notice in light of that, Jesus turns to Paul and asks him to read. Paul, would you read Hebrews 12, verse number 14? You may notice in that passage, a very brief passage in many ways, but as Paul is asked to read it, it sounds like this. Follow peace with all men and holiness... "...without which no man shall see the Lord." And the Lord points out, this individual has thus chosen to live in an unholy way. And therefore, that person will never be able to see the Lord, never be able to go to heaven. Are there other questions Jesus asks? You notice again, another gentleman, very curious and quite frankly rather excited. He raises his hand garnering the attention of Jesus And at this point, he says, Jesus, if I understand you right, what you just said is that if an individual then will not repent of sin, though once a Christian and now living unfaithfully, we're supposed to withdraw. Jesus says, yes, that's what I said. And the gentleman asks, could you be more specific about that? That is to say, could you give us more detail or information about the sins you're talking about? Well, you'll notice here, Jesus says, I'm glad you asked. In fact, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 5? And let's, in fact, let verse 11 of that chapter, in fact, give us even more information. Jesus refers to that passage and He says, But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such and one know not to eat. Now, as the Lord identified that particular passage, He says, let's stop here before we go on to some more examples in a moment. But here is a list, and Paul, I thank you for writing that a few centuries ago. He begins by saying, a man who is a brother, who is a fornicator, So an individual who, again, though once a faithful Christian, is now living in sexual sin with a person with whom he or she is not scripturally married. Jesus says, if they won't repent of this, you've got to withdraw from them. But He goes on. A covetous person. If there's evidence in this individual's life, some individual, man or woman, and there's clear evidence that this person loves something more than God, That's what covetousness means. I have elevated something in my priority above my service to God. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's my job. Maybe it's some other element in life. Jesus says, you've got to withdraw. If there's evidence to that reality, He goes on, an idolater. If there's a person worshiping something more than worshiping God, anything else, regardless what it is, that person can't go to heaven Jesus says you've got to withdraw. He goes on. A railer. Now that word comes from a Greek word that has to do with reviling. So, a person's speech is important. If there's a person who wants a Christian but begins to slander and to use language that's inappropriate, if they won't repent of that, the church's got to withdraw from them. Next, he mentions a drunkard. Any Christian must have nothing to do with beverage alcohol. If a Christian begins to dabble in this, even socially, and they won't repent, you've got to withdraw from them. Lastly, an extortioner. Now, that word, again, comes from an idea of taking advantage of others, kind of like a thief, but doing it in a somewhat secretive way. You're extorting what belongs to somebody else, taking it for yourself. If they won't repent of this, you've got to withdraw from them. But there's more in the Word of God than just that location. What if we consider Romans 16, verse 17? Another class of individuals from whom the church is commanded to withdraw. Closing chapter of that Roman letter, he says, "...Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them." So if there's an individual who begins to teach, or at least is the driving force behind divisions and always keeping the church in turmoil, you've got to mark that person and avoid them. Now, you admonish them to repent and you encourage them to follow the truth, but if they won't do it, you've got to avoid them. Let's look at another one. In Second Thessalonians 3.6, that was the lesson text read earlier in our hearing this morning. To that Thessalonian church, Paul wrote these words. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. The background behind the term is incredibly interesting. That phrase, walking disorderly, If you can imagine a military regiment, a group of soldiers, they march in step. Everyone's foot hits the ground at the same time. And in so doing, they continue in step. The Greek word identifies a person who's walking out of step. Can you imagine a platoon, perhaps of 500 men? Everybody but one is walking in step. Their feet are hitting the ground at the same time. They are marching in perfect order. But there's one guy who's not. He stands out easily. You can readily tell he's not in step with the others. That's the idea behind the term. Paul commanded the church in Thessalonica, you've got to withdraw from that man. Now he begins to list in some verses following that the nature of spiritually what that man's doing. First of all, you'll notice in verse number 7, For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us. This gospel message delivered, this is what we're supposed to follow. Verse 8, a man that won't work to take care of his family. Notice, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day. Verse 10, if a man won't work, he ought not eat. So if there's a lazy man, a Christian, the lazy man, and won't take care of his wife and children, and he won't repent of that, you've got to withdraw from him. He's not doing what the God of heaven expects him to do. He's not being dutiful with respect to the obligations given to him. Read on if you would. Verse number 14. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him. So the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there's a person, man or woman, they've known the truth. They subscribe to it for a while but they've quit. They no longer, again, are obeying that word. They're marching out of step. You've got to withdraw from them, Paul said. You'll notice as Jesus quotes those things, one last thing. As you turn with me to yet another book, there's more information given about those from whom this is to take place. We just read verse 14. Notice first Timothy 6 verse 3. There we have yet another listing, or at least a description. And notice what's involved in that one. Let me read verses 3 through 5. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, and evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. So here's an individual who you'll notice is described with an element of arrogance. He or she thinks, whatever this thing God says, I believe I'm going to do it my way. I think I know better than He does. And I'm going to live this way regardless what you say. If that kind of attitude's prevalent, notice again, Paul commanded the church there at Ephesus under the leadership of Timothy, you've got to withdraw from that person. Finally, Titus chapter 3, one last description. This time, the description has but one word to note. Titus 3 verse 10, A man that is a heretic, after the first and second admonition, reject. That word heretic means a factious man. Again, a bit of a reference to a person that stirs up trouble, causes divisions, really causes the faith of impressionable people to be shipwrecked. After you admonish him once or twice, you got to with reject him. At that point, Jesus then says, again, I'm so thankful for the question and I hope that our usage of the Word of God has been helpful. Are there any more questions? Another gentleman rises. This time, he again speaks very complimentary. But he says, Jesus, I am very, very confused. I thought that you, above all other people, teach about love. Your gospel is based on love. This sure sounds like a very unloving thing to me. You're withdrawing fellowship from somebody. That sure sounds unloving. Can you help me understand that? Jesus says, I'm glad you asked. Because quite frankly, this is a very good question. Love. Every one of us know very well that love must involve discipline. Any parent that won't discipline their children doesn't love them, regardless what they may say. We know from the Old Testament as well as the New that one must nurture and admonish children. They need to learn. Well, may I say, even as adults, sometimes we need discipline. Jesus quickly interjects this. It is by far the most loving thing that a church can do to withdraw from those that need withdrawn from. Because it is a statement of concern. You love their soul more than they do. They're headed to perdition and you love them enough to try and get their attention, to wake them up out of the doldrums of sinfulness and to help them see that if they don't change, then they're going to stand before me, Jesus says, on the day of judgment. And I will have no recourse but to say, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I know you not. That's the last thing you want them to hear. And you are taking these steps with a hope. I know you can't make them repent, but you could help them hopefully see the urgency of their decision, the sadness of their condition, and bring them back to a state of faithfulness. You So it's not unloving. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's just the same way that when a father or mother disciplines a child, it isn't fun to whip a child or to punish them. But the reason you do it is so that they will become good citizens and they will learn that that which they had done is not proper and they ought never to do it again. That's the reason that this withdrawal takes place with the hope that they can be brought back to the sweet favor of faithfulness. And so again, Jesus says, I so much thank you for that question. But at that point, He readily asks for another. This next question, question number six... By this point, a man, perhaps over at the, at the edge of the auditorium, has begun to get rather excited. He raises his hand to get the attention of Jesus. And as you'll see in that question number six, he says, "'I hear, Jesus, you saying that to withdraw fellowship is something that you've described in these various ways, but I would like to know specifically and exactly what it involves. How do I do this?' If I'm a member of this congregation, for example, of which this person is a member, how do I physically do this? Jesus turns to Paul and says, would you read 1 Corinthians 5 verse 13? Paul opens to that particular passage and he reads the following. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 13. But them that are without God, but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Paul has thus used the word wicked to describe this this individual, this person. And he says, church has got to put them away. Well, the man quickly continues by saying, but Jesus, what does that mean? How do I or anybody else put this person away? It is with that point in mind. This same person proceeds into question 7. I'm confused. Do I act unkindly to this person? Do I act with a bit of standoffishness toward this person? At this point again, Jesus very quickly tries to help the person understand. You may notice on this slide. And would you turn with me to 2 Thessalonians 3.15. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 15. In the very context that we read a moment ago, let me begin reading in verse 14. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Let's pause at that point. The whole goal of withdrawing fellowship is that this person may be ashamed of what he or she has done that they may come to realize that what they've done has offended the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for them, has brought reproach on the church of which they once were a faithful part, and that their current life is a disgrace for what the gospel stands for. But note verse 15, Yet count him not as an enemy. You don't hate him. Oh, you don't hate him. In fact, from what we've noted earlier, you love him enough to try to discipline this person. But you don't hate him. You don't count him as an enemy. But rather, admonish him as a brother. That word admonish means to warn. You bring to his attention the error that he's making and you urge him. Can I help you? Is there something I can do to assist you in repentance? Can I study with you? May we talk about the nature of this set of choices that you've made and how the Bible says that's wrong. Don't you want to go to heaven? Can I encourage you then along that pathway? Certainly you don't treat the person like an enemy. After all, they are a human being as well, and they're an immortal spirit, and they're going to be judged by the God of heaven at some point. Oh, how we want them to be saved. In connection to that, would you turn back to 1 Corinthians 5, and let's read verse number 5 to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. The whole goal is to destroy this fleshly set of choices this person has made, that in mind he or she will move in the direction of rightness, will seek again to pursue and love the truth. But the verse goes on, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He may be lost or she may be lost now, but hopefully as the withdrawal process occurs and it leads to the person thinking and reflecting on what he or she has done, they'll repent, hopefully. And in time, they'll be saved on the day of judgment. Surely that is an exciting thought, isn't it? Jesus says that's what the process is all about. And if it works as we hope it will, it'll always work that way. But let's read onward. You may notice in light of this, we come to a question eight. This time, the very same person, after Jesus had answered the previous one, he says, but Jesus, you have helped me a great deal, but I'd like to ask you to elaborate even more. What else could you help me understand about keeping no company with? I notice you had Paul read a moment ago from 1 Corinthians five 1 And you had also a reference to 2 Thessalonians 3. So when you say, have no company with, what does that mean? Jesus says again, make sure you don't hate the person and you don't think of him as an enemy. When you have no company with, that means no social interaction. You try to exhort, instruct, teach, and warn. But that person must realize that he, as well as you, are in different camps at this point. You're saved and he's not. You're in good fellowship with me and with my Father in heaven, but he isn't. You are in connection with the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit, but he isn't. He's got to understand that. And he needs to be brought to understand it. And so would you note this particular passage. Paul, would you read 1 Corinthians 5, verse number 11 again. Paul turns back to the passage and reads it again. But now I've written unto you not to keep company if any man is a brother, a fornicator, a covetous, idolater, a railer, a drunkard, an extortioner. With such an one, know not to eat. That phrase in Greek, know not to eat, highlights a class of social activities. You can't enjoy a common meal with this person anymore. He's got to understand, or she must come to realize that I have lost the greatest thing in this world, connection to my Heavenly Father. And these people who love Him, namely love God, they too will strive to appreciate that same fact, not eating with this person. But notice what else. In 2 Thessalonians 3.14, again, as we read a moment ago, not considering the person an enemy, but admonishing this person. That means I can try to speak encouraging the person to change, asking if we can be of help or assistance. But I cannot give that person the impression that all is well with that person's soul. If I keep doing with that person what I always have done, if I keep engaging in what I always have, that person will not be led to understand the gravity of what has taken place. Not only that, As you and I close that slide, you notice that even more questions that immediately raises, and so we'll discuss them all in light of question number nine. This question again, the person says, I would like to then finally clarify to help me understand the nature of this withdrawing of fellowship. The man says, Jesus, I think I understand, but is this what you are involving? That means I am not to encourage or endorse in any social way the fellowship with that individual. Jesus says yes. And then Jesus turns to John and says, John, would you read from 2 John verses 9, 10, and 11? Just to highlight the nature of this point, and so let me also read it in our hearing today. 2 John, beginning in verse 9. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God speed. For he that biddeth him God speed is partaker of his evil deeds. The point being, Jesus says... You, as a faithful Christian, then cannot behave in any way to bid that man Godspeed, to leave him with the impression that all is well, because if you do, you're just as guilty as he is. You can't bid him Godspeed, you can't invite him into your house, you cannot engage in that social set of activities, because if you do, then you also are as guilty as he is. The idea, the circumstances that we use to surround that particular question have brought us to appreciate the Lord's love for this person is so keen, so great, that He would reach to that extent with the goal of reclaiming that person's mind and thinking so that they will behave in the way that Jesus would wish them to do it. Isn't it true that in light of the various questions that have been asked, could you and I notice perhaps a bit of obligation then that would rest upon us? In Ephesians 6, verse number, I'm sorry, Galatians 6, verse number one, brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such in one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself lest thou also be tempted. Isn't that a reminder then that again we don't hate the person, in fact we love them enough to exert these kinds of efforts with the goal of restoring them, that they may come to their senses and again enjoy the faithfulness and the fellowship that we have with God. For all those reasons, we close it all with one final question. One last observation that someone wishes to ask. And so this another gentleman raises his hand, garners the attention of Jesus, and he says... What then should be considered in light of the unity of the church as it proceeds with this work? What if there are some in the church that don't want to do it? What if perhaps there are some in the congregation who quite frankly don't have much of an interest in it? Jesus says one more time, Oh, that's a great observation. In fact, I'm so appreciative that you asked it. Jesus says, My body is a unified whole. They love each other. They want to do what is the will of my heavenly Father, and they speak with the same mind and the same mouth, Romans 15:6. In First Corinthians 1, verse number 10, we read this rather famous statement, "I beseech you brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment." And so Jesus quickly says if there's a congregation and that group of people have made the decision to withdraw and if there's one or more in that congregation that choose not to do it, there's a deep set of problems in that congregation. There's somebody acting in rebellion because the elders or the leadership of that church has made this choice out of love for that person and somebody doesn't love them enough to carry out the disfellowshipping. Someone doesn't love them enough to withdraw the fellowship. May I say, that kind of situation leads me, Jesus says, to make this statement. That kind of individual is an accessory to the sins of the one being withdrawn from. That person is only encouraging them in their sin. Only, in fact, diluting the effectiveness of the withdrawal of fellowship process. Jesus says, my church needs to be united and whole in carrying this out. That's the only way it'll ever be effective. May I say, by way of introduction and by way of encouragement, aren't we all aware of that too? If there's a family and dad, in fact, says to the son, son, because of what you've just done, I'm taking the car keys for a month. But behind dad's back, mom says, dad really didn't mean it. If you'll come and see me secretly, I'll let you have them. I think we all know what just happened. The whole discipline that the dad set forth has been completely short-circuited. Mom did what she shouldn't have done. She and dad need to be together on that punishment. And same in a congregation. If one or more people choose not to follow the direction of it, they've completely short-circuited the effectiveness of the whole withdrawal process. Aren't you interested to notice in 1 Corinthians 5, there was a man there who was living in fornication. And the church hadn't withdrawn from him, but Paul said, you've got to. What if there had been several members of the church that said, well, I don't think we need to. Some may withdraw from them, but I don't think I will. You notice what Paul said. Paul said those who would fail to do that are guilty of sin too. Doesn't all of this remind us that I hope this interview has been helpful as we've used the Word of God to our consideration, and we'll close our lesson that way. The interview has been stirring, it's been a reminder, and it's been an encouragement. I hope all of us as Christians recognize how much Jesus loves His church. If any one of us begin to go off on a tangent, every one of the rest of us need to love the one enough to go after Him. And we need to be consistent in carrying out this disfellowship. Everybody needs to be in on it. Because if we're not, it's just not likely, to, it's not likely to be effective. I hope we each appreciate how much the church loves us, how much Jesus loves us to ever put in place something like this. Today, as we're about to stand and sing a hymn of encouragement, I hope we each are reminded of just how tragic sin he is. It separates us from the God that loves us. It separates us from the one that died on the cross for us. But yet He still loves me even if I begin to live like that. And He tells His people, you go after Him. You go after her. And you try to bring them back. Because I want them to be saved. I want one day to be able to usher them into heaven. Today, as you and I analyze our life, do you stand faithfully with God? Do I? If you do, please keep living that way and don't ever let anything pull you aside. But if you're not faithful today, if you need to come back to your first love, never will there be a better day than the second Sunday in January 2019. We'd love to pray to God on your behalf. We'd love, in fact, to speak to Him, beseeching Him to forgive you so that you can be faithful and fellowship with Him. If we could be of help to you today... Why don't you let us do that? And why don't you come rushing to the side of Jesus? While together we stand and while we sing.